Welcome to The Modern Lawyer, a podcast about the changes and growth in the modern legal industry. I'm your host, Anand Upadhyay. We're approaching rapid change in law from a different angle today. Instead of focusing purely on the business of law or law firm economics, today we're looking at an issue that law and other industries have been grappling with for a long time. How can they make their workforce as diverse as the general public, or at least as diverse as their clients? With a renewed emphasis on diversity, the spotlight on hiring practices is brighter than ever. At the 2018 Academy Awards, no one was surprised when Frances McDormand, the critics and fan favorite, won Best Actress. The surprise came in the last part of her speech, where she left us all with two words that were unfamiliar to most of the public. I have two words to leave with you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Inclusion writer. The crowd that night was left wondering what the phrase inclusion writer even meant and why it was important enough to mention that phrase during an Oscar speech on the world stage. Most people, including lawyers, had never even heard of that phrase before. Today, we'll be exploring inclusion writers. How are they changing the face of the entertainment industry? And how could they be changing the way that other professions hire? We're proud to welcome one of the authors of The Inclusion Writer in McDormand's contract, Kalpana Kodagal, partner at Cohen Milstein, co-creator of The Inclusion Writer, and advocate for a greater discussion on equality in the workplace. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm really happy to be here and, and talking with you. So I have a background as an activist and organizer. It goes way back past law school into college and and even into high school. And I I came out of college um, working in the environmental movement and um, really got politicized with a sense of the importance of coalescing power, of figuring out who doesn't have power and who does have power and how that that uh, that work to build power, democratic muscle can lead to better policy outcomes. In this case, it was in the environmental movement. Um, I went to law school with that kind of worldview in mind and um, automatically found myself interested in class action litigation. To me, it seemed like the legal equivalent of organizing. It was a way to take um, individuals whose claims might not be huge, but were themselves meritorious and to gather them together to to take on a a big company, whether it was um, in a consumer-related fraud case or in employment and civil rights litigation, which, of course, is is what I do. Um, And so I went into law school with that in mind. I was looking to put together the kind of intellectual challenges and excitement of practicing the law with the uh, with the political power and mindset of organizing. And um, I, I went on to clerk on the Ninth Circuit for uh, Judge Betty Fletcher, who was a giant of her generation, one of the first women to to um, be appointed to the federal appellate benches back in the late 1970s by President Carter, um, and then came back to Cohen Milstein, where I had been a summer associate in law school. And I've been here ever since. So I'm coming up on 13 years at Cohen Milstein. I loved it here. Um, and, you know, partly because I 
do work. I represent employees and um, those who have been victims of discrimination, whether in the workplace or otherwise. And I do it with people that I really love and respect. It's a it's a pretty special, special place. So here I am for the last 13 years litigating around issues of discrimination in the workplace. And, um, and in that context, I, I see workplaces where things have gone badly wrong, almost a pathologist. You know, I, I um, have a, an opportunity to see workplaces where discrimination has really given rise to to serious problems, whether in compensation or promotions or hiring. And in that capacity, I also have had an opportunity to think about what workplaces that get hiring right do. Now, an inclusion rider can come in many forms, like any other contract provision. And just like certain other types of contract provisions, it can be extremely powerful. The idea is that somebody who has leverage or bargaining power or market power in an industry can use that market power to drive at or drive um, changes in interviewing and hiring and auditioning practices. Obviously, it came uh, came most most uh, recently came up in in Hollywood um, to drive. Uh, a change in the way that hiring and interviewing are done to make it more inclusive, to cut through implicit bias that can infect the hiring process in order to make both on-screen casting and behind-the-camera roles uh, more diverse, more accurately reflective of the world we live in and the world around us. Um, and, you know, we had been working, I, I've worked very closely with um, an Annenberg um, inclusion initiative USC Annenberg professor, Dr. Stacey Smith, and with Fanchon Cox DiGiovanni, who's an activist and um, the director of strategic initiatives at Pearl Street Films. Stacey and Fanchon and I took this idea and developed a template of contractual language that A-listers in Hollywood, content developers, directors, and producers can use going into negotiations with studios to help um, facilitate a shift from a hiring process that has been uh, really characterized by kind of insidery stuff to a hiring process that really develops a deep and diverse pool and encourages the hiring of qualified candidates from that pool um, where those candidates can be found in underrepresented backgrounds. Kalpana learned that instead of focusing her efforts on confronting power, she could divert and use that power to spur change in hiring and staffing. She and her co-creators decided to apply it to the entertainment industry for reasons that we'll get into. By approaching the diversity and hiring problem in a new way, she's creating an opportunity for powerful hires to leverage their prominence to benefit underprivileged and underrepresented groups. In an op-ed for The Hill, she said, quote, the unique strength of the inclusion rider is that it leverages the bargaining power of the people who already have industry clout to drive change, rather than placing the burden on the marginalized, end quote. This was a guiding principle for Kalpana and her colleagues as they began framing the legal structure of these contract provisions. When we started thinking about this together, right, Stacy had 
built a body of research as a professor of communications looking at representation on screen and behind the camera and wrote this, um, you know, this article for The Hollywood Reporter a, a number of years ago where she sort of thought about what it would look like to um, use something like a Rooney rule, which, of course, has been used in the NFL to build greater diversity among head coaches. So Stacy proposed this idea. What about we do a Rooney role? Um, and what about it focuses on the small roles that populate um, on-screen worlds, the police officers and the contractors and the, you know, florists and the doctors and all the all the smaller speaking roles on camera. Um, it wouldn't if it, that, that way you wouldn't impact story sovereignty. Right. So you wouldn't bump into sort of First Amendment concerns. You wouldn't change a project's ability to get financed. Um, but what you would do is um, is really start to change the pipeline. So that's where we started. And then Stacy met with Fanchon, who is at Pearl Street Films, where Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are the principals. And they expressed interest in, um, in a concept like this. And so the three of us got to work in writing this language. Now, it became very clear to us, right, as we as in, in the years that have elapsed as as we've been working on this, um, obviously, the industry is in a state of dynamic and um, an intense change. And, and that dynamic and intense change is not limited to Hollywood. We see it in the news media. We see it in government. We see it all over the place. Um, this real recognition of privilege. Who has it? What it means to have privilege um, and, and how that confers a set of advantages that you might not even be thinking about. And so as we thought about this idea of developing an inclusion rider, it became very clear to us, and, and Fanchon is really to be given a great deal of credit for articulating this part of it. It became very clear to us that we couldn't ask the Ava DuVernay's and the Shonda Rhimes who were already out there carrying the load on this to carry more of the load. Instead, it really should be for those who have privileged from the structure of Hollywood as it has been for decades. It should be for those folks to carry the load, to bear the risks. And so that is how we thought about the inclusion rider. The other piece of it, of course, is that it is those folks, those Matt Damons and Ben Afflecks, who also have so much influence to help drive change in the industry. And so there the strategy came together. Was it a conscious decision to start with Hollywood? Why not the legal industry? Why not the medical industry or, or any other industry? Well, I mean, this was this is a product that really is the product of Hollywood because it was Stacey and Banshin who are really uh, occupied in that world and driving change in that world. And, and I, um, you know, I will say that I also think another important piece of why Hollywood is that if we think about the role that Hollywood plays in our broader society. It's not just any other industry, right? It is the industry that um, that shapes the stories that we tell and the cultural narratives that shape our communities and influence our children. And so in some senses, it is, um, it's a meta industry. Its role is maybe of even greater importance than, say, the, the dollar value generated by the industry. So Hollywood, I think, has some special significance. It's visible, it's influential, um, and it's influential both here in the United States and abroad. 
I want to get into the weeds here a, a bit because I know most of our listeners are attorneys. How does this this inclusion rider functionally operate? Is it something that can be as simple as you know, kind of dragging and dropping a certain number of paragraphs into an employment agreement? And you know, if it is that simple, you know, to the extent that, that it is that simple, how would it be enforced, and who would enforce it? So let's talk about enforcement first. The inclusion rider is a contract. It's a contractual provision, right? It's between two parties. And so enforcement of that contractual provision would be like enforcement of any other contractual provision. The parties have bargained for it. And so if one of them doesn't live up to it, the template of the inclusion rider that we've made public includes a provision for um, for for some consequences, whether it be um, like a good faith contribution to a fund um, that, you know, provides scholarships for filmmakers from underrepresented backgrounds or some other kind of good faith contribution. That might be one way to think about a penalty. If if the and then we also think that there's real value in elevating those who hit their targets who make meaningful progress and so uh, the inclusion writer could provide for a good housekeeping seal of approval or um, an annual awards process any of those things could be part of the enforcement mechanism so that's that's the first part the enforcement part the second part is sort of really baked into the structure of the inclusion writer we think about hiring in a number of steps. The first is the process for either interviewing or auditioning, how you build a really deep and diverse pool. Um, and that's the first part of the inclusion rider. The second part of the inclusion rider goes farther to say, look, if you've got a particular set of demographics in a particular location, why not try to see if you can match those demographics in your actual hiring of qualified candidates? And that language is really important. That's what makes it not a quota, is to say, look, wherever possible, look for opportunities to hire, to actually hire, not just to interview, but to actually hire qualified candidates from those previously underrepresented backgrounds. And so, and then the third step, the third piece of the inclusion rider is, is the reporting piece, the gathering of data, right? And then the fourth is this enforcement mechanism. So those are the pieces of the rider as, as we've developed them. And so if uh, an attorney goes through all the steps that you've outlined and, and, you know, really tailors it and customizes it, what are some of the types of clauses that can be put into the inclusion rider to ensure that there will be an agreed upon amount of diversity across, you know, a lot of the folks that you mentioned, the extras and the stagehands, et cetera. And if, uh, if the studio or whoever is bound by this inclusion rider doesn't live up to its terms, who is uh, supposed to enforce it and how might they enforce it? So it is a flexible and adaptable framework. That means that um, it could be used, you know, as a template that we have made public for um, for lawyers and agents to take into negotiations with studios on behalf of their clients. I will say, however, that as with all issues that both relate to contract law and that relate to issues of affirmative action and diversity and employment and hiring, it's really, really important to get the details right. And um, in that sense, I think that the involvement of lawyers in the tailoring of the particular language really matters. And so I would encourage 
uh, actors not to just take it off the shelf and slot it into their contracts, but rather to think about the particular project that they want to apply it to, the location of that project, the size of that project, the studio that they're working with, the pipeline or the location of filming, all of those pieces really matter to getting this right. We know in the history of affirmative action that there are opponents of uh, building greater diversity in industry and in education who come after anything that resembles affirmative action with cries of quota or reverse discrimination. And so here's why lawyering and the details of lawyering matter to ensure that what actually gets implemented doesn't become a lightning rod for that kind of attack. In an interview you gave to Above the Law on March 5, you said the following, because much of the industry has only started to hear of this in the last few months, it's too early to think of this in terms of adoption rate thus far. Obviously, the Me Too and Time's Up movement have generated a groundswell of support around this, and we hope and expect that over the next few months and beyond, it will become widely used. At the end of the day, the core of the inclusion rider are a set of best employment practices. They're not rocket science. They are the kinds of best practices that companies and employers can be um, can be taking out for a spin any day. And in some ways, they are really deeply they are low hanging fruit. We're talking about you know, speaking roles that are relatively small and below the line, um, off camera roles. We know that there is a deep and diverse pool of candidates, of actors looking for those, um, for those speaking roles. And for most of those crew roles, the same is true. So I think the first lesson of the inclusion rider is let's not fall into the trap of thinking that somehow there aren't talented actors from underrepresented backgrounds waiting for these roles. And I think once we find ourselves able to say, which I think we're just you know, months away from, once we find ourselves being able to say, look, here was a project that used a version of the inclusion writer and it worked just fine. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't overly expensive. Um, we will see that those best practices, and let me say this, and it leads to a film that genuinely reflects the world that we live in attracting a level of public excitement and um, and box office dollars that are, you know, meaningful. I think once we see that kind of progress, it's really hard to argue that there's anything sort of that, prov that proves an impediment to implementing this. We've got Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Uh, thanks to Fanchon's really hard work with them. We've got Paul Feig, Entertainment 51, Endeavor Content Group. William Morris Endeavor is taking it to its entire roster of clients. I mean, I think if you talk to Stacey, and certainly I feel this way, there's no reason, really, that the principles embodied by the inclusion rider shouldn't be in wide scale adoption in a matter of three to five years, there's no reason that the inclusion rider as a concept, as a, as a contractual document shouldn't be obsolete. While we're still early on in the history of inclusion riders affecting social change, there are already positive outcomes from the strategic foundational work this team has been doing. Hollywood is a long game, right? And um, things like 
major motion pictures take months and years to develop. And so we don't yet have examples of the inclusion rider being used and data collected. But it's really clear that the level of adoption of this concept, not surprisingly, after Francis McDormand, you know, took us from sort of a place of quiet strategizing and obscurity in meetings to this level of um, of public endorsement that we had never expected. There's definitely a level of adoption that is moving rather quickly, and it will take some months and years, I suspect, before we have clear data on both in terms of the number of projects in which it's deployed and in terms of how many projects, um, because it just takes time for those projects to play themselves out. So I don't know yet that we have data. Stacey and Fanchin and I are incredibly committed to seeing that data, to collecting and seeing that data, um, because obviously this is a new strategy for this industry and we want it to work. And so if it's not yielding results, we will need to figure out how to make tweaks and what changes need to be made, whether it is in the language of the writer itself or in the strategy of its implementation to make sure that it does, in fact, do its part to create that pipeline. There's no rule barring inclusion writers in other industries. There is the potential for leaders in industries like law, medicine, and business to utilize inclusion writers to improve diversity at their firms, hospitals, or corporations. The inclusion writer as a strategy really flows from those who have clout, using that clout to drive change in their industry. And so that could be in the legal profession. It could be in the financial services profession. You could see it in um, in fashion. You could see it in medicine. There are so many places where, so many industries where this kind of concept um, really could be utilized to help drive change um, in the way that that industry looks, the way that it hires, what it values. Um, there's, there's no reason that, that the inclusion rider has to be limited to Hollywood. You can tell Kalpana is excited about her inclusion rider work, but her end goal is not just to change hiring in the entertainment industry. What she's really trying to do is create a tool that can restructure hiring in areas where there are superstars to hire. In this way, Kalpana is innovating in a way that we have not seen before in this context. I think that the public discussion around the value of diversity is shifting from a place of lip service to a place of true valuing of diversity and of inclusion. And so, I mean, I, I can't imagine five years ago anybody really talking about white privilege the way that white privilege is being talked about now in the public discourse. And I think that's true for harassment. I think it's true for equal pay. I think that there is a kind of discussion that's happening in the public sphere, or at least parts of the public sphere, that are much more sophisticated around what our society looks like, what it should look like, and where we're falling short. I am deeply encouraged by that kind of candor in our public discourse. The challenge that it leaves us with is how to actually realize it, how to actually realize it in the day-to-day of our law practices in Hollywood, in the financial services industry, um, in the nonprofit sphere. 
you know, we build diverse and rich organizations by doing the work. And so I, I want to encourage those who care about these issues to sit down and think about how to do the work, how not just to talk about it, but how to live it, how to get it done, how to be a change agent. Um, And, you know, there are folks like me and many, many others who have worked on these issues for a long time and I know want to be a resource for those folks who are trying to figure out how to make it happen. Many lawyers got into the practice of law because they want to make the world a more inclusive, equitable and accessible place for everyone. Kalpana is taking practical and innovative steps using her law degree and passion for justice to do exactly that. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you. Reach out to me at Anand at Casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag ModernLawyer, and check us out at ModernLawyerPodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Casetext team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.